ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 13th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Australians hoping for cash handouts from the federal government ahead of Christmas are likely to be disappointed today as the Treasurer unveils the mid-year budget update. While the government's likely to paint a rosier set of numbers than it had forecast when it delivered its May budget, it's talking up the need for restraint in spending as its own interest bills soar. Here's political reporter Chantelle Alcouri. As many Australians struggle to make ends meet ahead of the festive season, the federal government is about to unwrap an early Christmas present. There's a lot of good luck at the moment that is driving improvements in the budget. And luck is wonderful, but it's not permanent. Independent economist Chris Richardson. There is good news in the economy, but particularly good news in the bits of the economy that drive the budget. Today's mid-year budget update will show extra cash flowing into Commonwealth coffers thanks to higher global commodity prices and more money coming from income tax. And the government has made a decision that rather than spend that cash, it's going to bank the bulk of it. 92% of it, in fact, in a bid to pay down debt and help ease some of its own interest repayments. But Chris Richardson is warning that good luck isn't a substitute for policy decisions, such as cutting government spending or the trickier task of raising extra revenue. And a bit of luck, or if you want to call it luck, somebody puts a packet of Tim Tams in front of them. What the Treasurer is saying is, look, I only ate three of the Tim Tams. Aren't I good? You know, I didn't eat the entire packet. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, luck's a fortune, but it's not a strategy. Banking some of that extra money could be a good thing. The government will pay more than $20 billion in interest on its debts this financial year alone, with the value of repayments expected to overtake the cost of the National Disability Insurance Scheme as the government's fastest-growing spending category. Debt has increased significantly over the period of the COVID-19 pandemic in response. Leader economist at Access Economics, Angela Jackson, agrees the government should save most of its additional revenue and says Australia is in a much better financial position than other countries. But she says it needs to do more to address the long-term sustainability of the budget. It can see from its intergenerational report that it doesn't quite square up in terms of what it's planning to spend and what it's planning to raise in terms of revenue. Cost of living relief is unlikely in time for the holidays, with the Treasurer flagging further the relief will come in next year's budget. Angela Jackson says the government's priority should be ensuring it isn't adding to inflationary pressures by pumping more money into the economy. But that doesn't mean targeted support for those under immense strain shouldn't be considered. Households do still need support during this period. So, you know, cutting back on sort of support to households um, during this period would be, you know, make life very, very difficult for households that are already under a lot of financial stress. Trying to balance political pressures and budget realities. That report from Chantelle Alcouri and Tom Crowley. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, joined me a short time ago. Dr Chalmers, thanks for talking to AM. The numbers are apparently much rosier than those in the budget in May, but the extra money's not going to go to taxpayers in the form of cost of living assistance. It'll go to paying down debt. Why? Well, there will be a substantial improvement in the budget position in the mid-year update that I released with Katie Gallagher later this morning. Uh, But there are still substantial pressures on the budget. Uh, We are expecting a big improvement, uh, but still deficits across the forward estimates. 
The other thing about cost of living is we are still rolling out that very substantial cost of living help that we budgeted for uh, in the May budget. Uh, this mid-year budget update is not intended to be a mini budget or another budget. It's an update. It's a stock take. Uh, and we will consider any further cost of living relief if it's necessary in the lead up to the budget next May. All right. Many families will be doing it tough this Christmas. Some voters are very disenchanted. Homelessness groups are reporting a big jump in demand this year. <clears throat> what do you say to them? Well, we do understand uh, that people are doing it tough and that Christmas time can be an especially difficult time of year. Uh, this is one of the reasons why in that $23 billion cost of living package, uh, we have targeted help uh, to the most vulnerable people in our community. It's why we've uh, given electricity bill relief, which is still rolling out. We're not just recognising it, not just acknowledging it, we're acting on it as well. And that's mm. why the cost of living help is rolling out right now. You've talked about a substantial revision. You're not planning a surprise surplus in May? Well, we're not uh, planning a surplus in the mid-year budget update. Uh, what people can expect to see today is a very small deficit for the year that we're in right now a substantial improvement in the budget position for this year compared to uh, the forecast in May, but still a very small deficit. Uh, but part of the reason why uh, we're getting the budget in much better nick, part of the reason why responsible economic management is really the defining feature of this mid-year budget update is because if we get the budget in much better nick, we get these deficits down, we avoid a whole heap of debt and the interest costs on that debt, then we can make room for cost of living help and for the big investments that we're making in Medicare and housing and energy and skills and all of these important areas. So there'll be a substantial improvement in the budget. Uh, that will come as a consequence of our responsible economic management. But there's still pressure on the budget. Our job, whether it's finding another $10 billion in savings, whether it's banking these upward revisions to revenue, uh, is all about making room for uh, investing in uh, and providing assistance where we can. There are some other big investments too on the horizon. There'll be more money for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, more money for new foundational supports in schools, possibly more money for schools in general. There's also the unanswered question of fixing and paying for aged care. Where will the money come for all of these things? Well, again, this is one of the reasons why we're getting the budget in much better nick, so that we can fund the things which our society and our country and our economy uh, really values and really needs. Uh, and you've run through some of those really important investments. Uh, spending on the NDIS will continue to grow. We do and we are making investments in uh, aged care and uh, Medicare and, and strengthening our care economy more broadly. And so what we've been able to do over the course of two budgets and now a mid-year budget update is find a total of $50 billion in savings to avoid hundreds of billions of dollars in debt, tens of billions of dollars in interest costs on that debt. Uh, and that means that we can focus our efforts and our energy uh, on the things that we truly value. Uh, and you'll see that in the mid-year budget update. We've made room for cost of living help, which is rolling out right now. We've made room for these key investments, particularly in housing and energy and Medicare and skills. We've made the room for that. Uh, but that is an ongoing task beyond uh, today's budget update. All right. You mentioned housing there. The migration strategy was launched earlier this week. The opposition says you've closed the door on bringing in tradies at a time when Australia is suffering a building crisis and that the decision will impact housing affordability. And You've made it harder for people to find tradies. Will your policy do that? 
No, that's complete rubbish, and it's another reminder, don't get your information about the economy from Peter Dutton. Uh, what the migration strategy that we released uh, earlier in the week did, and I commend Claire O'Neill and the other colleagues for this, is it will help tackle the shortage of tradies in our economy. Uh, there's a streamlined visa settings, there's a pathway to permanent residence uh, for uh, migrant tradies. Uh, there is you know, much faster approvals uh, for the skills that we need. But what we need to make sure here is that any tradies we bring in are to complement the Australian workforce, not as a substitute for the Australian workforce. Uh, there needs to be a demonstrated shortage. In some of these areas, nobody will have any difficulty demonstrating that there is a shortage. Uh, and so the streamlined uh, visa processing, the core skills pathway, the permanent uh, the pathway to permanent residency, all of these things will improve the position when it comes to getting the skills that we need in our economy. If I could ask about the statement on Israel and Gaza and calls for a sustainable ceasefire, how much impact will that have? Well, I, I would expect it to be... Um, I expected it would be impactful because it's a it's an important statement. It's a statement which condemns uh, the terrorist actions of Hamas, uh, but it says that the defeat of Hamas uh, can't be come at the cost of the permanent ongoing suffering of ordinary Palestinian people. Uh, and I see in the statement uh, the support for uh, another pause in hostilities, uh, but also. Uh, support amongst the three Prime Ministers, including our own, uh, for urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire. Now, that ceasefire can't be one-sided. We need to see the hostages released. We need to see ordinary Palestinians stop being used as human shields. Uh, but we do need to work towards a sustainable ceasefire here, and that important statement released by the three Prime Ministers recognises that. Treasurer, thanks for talking to AM. Thanks, Sabra. That's the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. As we've just heard, the Prime Ministers of Australia, Canada and New Zealand have issued a statement saying they support urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza. It also says they're alarmed at the diminishing safe space for civilians in Gaza and that the price of defeating Hamas cannot be the continuous suffering of all Palestinian civilians. A group of Australian politicians is in Israel. The shadow foreign minister, Simon Birmingham, is leading the cross-party delegation and I spoke with him a short time ago. He was in Jerusalem. Senator, do you support this statement and its calls for a sustainable ceasefire? Well, Sabra, I've had a chance to quickly review the statement. It makes a few key points about what must be in a ceasefire, and that is that Hamas would have to release all hostages, that they would have to lay down all of their arms, and they would have to stop using Palestinians as human shields. Now, ultimately, if Hamas did all of those things, I'm sure there would be a ceasefire, and that is exactly uh, what we have been calling for and we would call for. Uh, of course, uh, the statement does appear in some ways to try to be all things to all people in the way it's presented. But ultimately, those are the key points, that for there be any chance of long-lasting peace and any way to avoid repeats of the horrors that occurred on October the 7th, Hamas needs to lay down its arms, it needs to surrender its terrorist operatives uh, and it needs to release all of the hostages it continues to hold. The leaders say that they are also deeply concerned by the scale of the crisis in Gaza and the risk to all Palestinian lives, calling for a safe, unimpeded humanitarian access, saying it must be increased and sustained. 
you met with the Palestinian Authority today. Have they told you about what they're seeing and do you share those concerns and calls? I think anyone with any sense of humanity feels enormous pain for what has been a huge loss of innocent lives of children and others from Hamas's attacks on October 7, their continuous use of Palestinians as human shields, uh, and of course, all of the humanitarian consequences there. In discussions with the Palestinian Authority and with the Israeli government, uh, we've talked about humanitarian access, uh, the fact that there are instances where uh, Hamas commandeers humanitarian convoys. Uh, The welcome news this week that Israel is supporting the opening of a new entry point or the reopening of an entry point into Gaza to allow for more humanitarian access to get in. Uh, And that is crucial and critical. Uh, But ultimately, all of this, of course, would not have happened if the events of October 7 hadn't occurred and could come to an end if Hamas uh, ceased its terrorism, its warfare, uh, and its use of Palestinians as human shields. You've highlighted the Hamas extremists and what they've done, but what about the innocent Palestinians caught up in this? Well, tragically, the innocent Palestinians are indeed caught up as Hamas is buried into a tunnel network that is larger in some reports than the New York subway system. Uh, The Hamas terrorists have used schools, hospitals and other infrastructure as means to hide their military operations. And that, of course makes this an incredibly complex and difficult situation. Uh, Now, uh, we all want to see an end to human suffering, but nobody should want to see a situation uh, where there is a premature end uh, and ultimately Hamas simply regroups, rearms and recommits the types of atrocities that happened on the 7th of October. This statement says also that defeating Hamas cannot be at the continuous suffering of all Palestinian civilians and the forcible displacement of Palestinians and reoccupation of Gaza. Do you share those views? Well, that is uh, that is where we have to be clear and have moral clarity about the fact that uh, Hamas's objective on the 7th of October and ongoing objective, which they have publicly stated, is to kill Jews. They targeted targeted innocent civilians babies, the elderly and others. Now, Israel is undertaking a military operation that is targeting Hamas. Sadly, there is a loss of innocent life that comes with that. We would all wish that it wasn't so, but we cannot lose sight of the moral reality that Hamas's objective is not against the Israeli military, it's against Jewish people, full stop, Uh, and that that is something that needs to be brought to an end uh, to give any chance of having both Palestinian people and Jewish people and Israeli citizens able to live peacefully side by side, which is what we all want to see. Yeah, you visited sites that Hamas attacked and you've met the Palestinian Authority and you've met survivors of these attacks. What was your message to both? Well, the message has been very clearly that Australia, and particularly this delegation, is clear in our support for Uh, Israel in the right to self-defence and the right to remove Hamas as a threat in expectations of there being due regard to international law and the way that's undertaken the importance uh, of humanitarian access. We have delivered all of those points, but of course also uh, a simple demonstration of human compassion uh, about the horrors and the tragedies that uh, that have unfolded and were committed by Hamas and 
the need to ensure that that doesn't occur again. We've also had very important conversations about how to tackle the rise in anti-Semitism, and uh, that is something that we face in Australia uh, and needs to be something that we all commit ourselves to to ensure the cohesion and harmony within our own communities too. Simon Birmingham, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you, Sabra, my pleasure. And Simon Birmingham is the Shadow Foreign Minister. People in far north Queensland are bracing as Cyclone Jasper moves towards the coast. The Category 1 storm is about 200 kilometres northeast of Cairns and is expected to make landfall later today. Our reporter Matt Bamford has been speaking with locals and scientists who've spent days preparing. On a semi-rural property an hour north of Cairns, Dr David Henderson is putting the final touches on one of his swirl net towers. They're about three and a half metres tall. They have a, a propeller anemometer on the top of them. Um, we put um, ground screws into the ground because we don't want these things going anywhere. And then they send information back um, as long as the phone network, the mobile phone network is working um, every 10 minutes while they're running. The chief engineer at James Cook University's cyclone testing station is racing to prepare as Cyclone Jasper nears the coast. His team has set up several towers between here and Cairns to try to capture the wind speed and atmospheric pressure of the storm and measure its effect on local infrastructure. We're trying to see what the wind is like at a house level and trying to understand the gustiness and the turbulence that's you know, caused by the friction and everything else. What you're describing to me sounds a bit like the movie Twister. Is that uh, <laughs> how, how close are we to that? Well, one of the differences is we, we don't get out in front. We set up our gear and we run away. So, but it, it's a similar type of idea in terms of you understanding the phenomenon, understanding the and the nature of the wind to see what we can learn so we can hopefully make things better. Dr Henderson usually makes his recordings in a lab, so it's a chance to record data in the field. It's really trying to understand the really dynamic nature of the wind and relating that back to the good and bad performance of the buildings that we go back and do damage surveys of around it uh, and then we try to relate that back to building codes and see if there's any changes that are required. 40 minutes down the road, Nick Jampetro from Ellis Beach Oceanfront Bungalows is keeping an eye on the horizon. We've got 24 cabins along the beachfront, all within 5, 10 metres from the ocean itself. And then we've got three at the back, which will be safe. Just the 24 on the front are, are the concern, just on the storm surge and the high tides. But, yeah, I'm just not sure what's going to happen. While most guests have left, some are keen to stick it out. So a lot of guests have chosen to leave for their safety. And we do have a few guests staying that want to watch it. A little adventure, they called it. At the Cairns Yacht Club, Rob Lattimore has been working hard with other members to protect vessels from predicted storm surges. All the yachts and the bigger boats get put into various spots in the creeks and the mangroves um, and tied up with several anchors and ropes. And then we um, pull the powerboats um, out of the water. With the hard work done, Rob Lattimore says there's little left to do but wait for the storm to pass. I'll be at home with my family. I've got two little girls, so they've never seen a cyclone before. So um, we'll be locking down at home, making sure we're all safe here and, and looking after them. Rob Lattimore from the Cairns Yacht Club, ending Matt Bamford's report. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Electric vehicles, electric bikes, electric scooters, they're becoming more prevalent. But as we make the green transition, the dangers of the lithium-ion batteries that power these devices and many others 
are becoming more apparent. Today, the lead technology translator from the University of New South Wales, Matthew Priestley, on what causes the battery fires and how to reduce the risk. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.